Welcome to the 50th episode of Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history. Brought to you by the State Historian at UConn Hartford and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. This episode is sponsored by attorney Peter Bowman. Find out more at bowman.legal and Connecticut Humanities, co-publisher of Connecticut Explored. What do you think of when you hear New Haven? Yale University's campus, the New Haven Green, Ikea? Today we're taking you to a special and unexpected part of New Haven in advance of a special event happening there you won't want to miss, Morris Cove Day on June 9, 2018. Jason bischoff Wurzel and Ed Serrato from the New Haven Museum will tell you about Morris Cove's Sandy Beach, Vanished Amusement Park, Attacked by the British in the Revolutionary War, and more. Visit Connecticut Explored's Facebook page to see video of Morris Cove while you're listening. Hi, it's Mary Donahue, Assistant Publisher of Connecticut Explored for Grading the Nutmeg. Boy, the summer season is short in Connecticut, and we like to bring you stories of some of the best places to visit while it's warm and sunny. In episode 36, we took you on a bike ride on the airline trail. In 35, we went to Milford's Bagel Beach, and in episode 10, we went on a walking tour of Stonington and visited a clam shack. But today's episode will take you to the eastern shore of New Haven Harbor, an area full of scenic, historic, and family-friendly destinations, including Lighthouse Point Park, an 80-plus acre public park with a beach, swimming, nature trails, and an antique carousel. Fort Nathan Hale is a shoreline state park with the ruins of an American Revolutionary Fort and wonderful water views. And there's also the summer home of the New Haven Museum, the Party Morris House, an 18th century colonial homestead donated to the museum 100 years ago, whose spacious grounds are used for twilight concerts, yoga on the lawn, and book talks during the summer. But this delightful day trip destination was not always part of the city of New Haven. Let's join our friends from the New Haven Museum as they tell us about some of its history, including its fame as the Newport of Connecticut. Hi, my name is Jason Bischoff-Forstall. I'm the Director of Photo Archives and work in exhibit production here at the New Haven Museum. Hello, my name is Ed Serrato. I'm a reference librarian in the Whitney Library at the New Haven Museum. And today we're talking about Morris Cove and kind of centering on its unique history, being a part of New Haven, but existing within New Haven, within East Haven, and altogether, this this interesting little nook on the Atlantic seaboard here, or rather Long Island Sound. How was Morris Cove originally settled? We look at the history of the cove, Morris Cove, and its despite being on the outside of New Haven, and it, and it seems kind of strange because New Haven generally is centered around at least most, what, what what's discussed most of the time is considered the nine squares and the history of the nine squares, downtown New Haven. But this is far flung. This is, you know, literally across the harbor, geographically at, the, at one of the furthest points. 
So why is it part of our community? And the thing about it is it's actually been part of the community from the founding of New Haven as a colony. And, you know, an idea to that is when was it initially settled? You could ask why was it, uh, it was initially settled by the Native Americans long before uh, European settlement, which happened in 1638. And actually that adds to the significance of that area too in ways that people perhaps in New Haven uh, even today don't really recognize. The first, as part of uh, the European settlement in 1638 and negotiations between that, that would establish the New Haven colony, the settlers and the Native American tribe living within the area, the Quinnipiacs, came to an agreement that essentially what's the nine squares downtown would be owned by these English settlers. And the Quinnipiacs would have this one section of land. What happened in 1779? So 1779, July 5th. And what you had was the revolution was underway. The British landed at what we would call today Lighthouse Point. At that point, that land was uh, owned by the uh, parties. And the it was called, uh, traditionally, it was on the Morris Plantation. And it was called Five Mile Point. Either way, what we call today this park at the end of the East Shore, the British landed an an invasion force and with the attempt to invade New Haven. So along the way, they burned the homes, uh, supporters, and and pushed ultimately the um, Patriot forces back, but they were held off long enough to assemble other forces along the way. So the the invasion itself was supposed to be in in West Haven and a force did uh, land at West Haven and at Lighthouse Point and then kind of converge in New Haven just above the green and then march down to the green and take over the city. Didn't quite, they eventually did do that motion, but along the way, uh, they were uh, fought back against Beacon Hill, as I mentioned, which was originally a uh, Native American burial ground. At this point, was used to literally beacon to other patriots up and down the coast and, and the city itself that this invasion was happening. So how did that British invasion of New Haven end? So their invasion, as I mentioned, was uh, they, they did make it to downtown New Haven, but they found enough resistance that they eventually boarded back on their ships, left, turned around, or, or basically, you know, aimed their cannons back towards the city and fired upon the, the colony, fired upon Black Rock, which uh, was the fortress uh, setup of guns uh, defense network that also is located there in uh uh, the East Shore, right on the border of what we call the Annex and Morris Cove, which is today known as Fort Nathan Hale. It would be later known officially as Fort Nathan Hale in the War of 1812, when it was rebuilt, re-kind of commissioned under the U.S. government. It was also later reinforced, uh, a different version of Fort Nathan Hale was reinforced and uh, made essentially to a, a concrete bunker during the U.S. Civil War. And that fort is still there today, not quite as a as a military fort, but actually it's training ground for the Coast Guard. So we go from the 1779 burning and invasion by the British 
Fast forward 100 years to the 1880s and 90s, and this area is actually called the Newport of Connecticut. I can't, uh, can't believe that looking at it now. Why was it called that? So something to think about in that, in that uh, statement, the Newport of Connecticut. At that time, the late 18th century, you have the resorts, the summer resorts, kind of showing up along the seacoast, especially here in Connecticut. And um, nearby, say in Brantford, around the Thimble Islands, uh, you had larger hotels and, again, kind of a little more celebrated. And you'd have people from New York, large businessmen, women, uh, the gentry kind of would spend their summers here. You have famous authors, artists, etc. The cove was significant, and what's interesting about it is, yes, we had large hotels that were being built, but it was kind of almost more, it was a summer place for everybody. And and being that the local, the, the neighborhood itself was still independent, even though it was owned by, by uh, New Haven, or rather had been annexed by New Haven by that point from East Haven, it was still basically an independent village. And this village, its economy was based off of um, farming for the most part. And this is similar, and, and the history of the East Shore is similar to that of uh, Brooklyn, for instance, in New York City, because every city, especially at that point, needed farmland. So they had their own economy, but part of what people being entrepreneurial found was they could open up their houses and establish them as cheap boarding houses. So again, anybody could kind of go out there and spend the summer. Here's what a correspondent for the Springfield, Massachusetts Republican newspaper said in 1878 about the attractions of Morris Cove. New Haveners who ride after their own horses these beautiful evenings are pretty sure to select the drive to Morris Cove around the east side of the bay. It is the most charming three-mile ride in any direction from the city. The road is of Fairhaven oyster shells, white and hard and smooth, while the views along its course are of surprising and varied beauty. Your horse climbs the gentle East Haven slope, passes the verdant brow of Fort Hill, goes by the dismantled Fort Hale, and descends to the cove, a delicious curve of sand indenting the bay. Morris's Cove has a pleasant hotel upon its rim and a cluster of pretty cottages perch upon its declivity approaching it. You know, Jason, Morris Cove hasn't always been part of the city of New Haven. I'm not sure all our listeners know that there's 169 towns in Connecticut. That's a lot of towns for a small state. How did Morris Cove go from the town of East Haven to the city of New Haven? At that time, East Haven did have the, the East Shore, which would encompass Morris Cove, what we call today the Annex, and Fairhaven Heights. And the charter of New Haven was that it was supposed to end at the Quinnipiac River. So, you know, look at look at that time period. At this point, you have the trolley system. And the trolley system is very important for the growth of any city, and especially in New Haven, and generally follows out in sort of a radial fashion. So from the center, and if, again, if we're thinking the center is the green, the downtown, the nine squares, moving out radially, you're going to eventually hit the shore, the heights, etc. So you had also this idea of suburbanization, and that was indeed happening, and uh, well-to-do 
business owners, people who, uh, you know, basically could afford to take to have large homes on this kind of pristine land on the outskirts of town. So people were moving to this area, but they would find themselves living in East Haven rather than New Haven. And so it became kind of a, the moneyed interests of sorts to want to be a part of New Haven. And as the story goes, large bridge was to be constructed. The city of New Haven and East Haven, they went in on the bridge. East Haven owed debt on the bridge afterwards. And part of this collection of the debt was, hey, why don't you give us Fairhaven Heights, the annex, and the East Shore? And obviously, it'd be far more complicated than that. And there's different reasons behind this with the economics with it. But it's kind of the gist. And um, what's interesting, though, about this, aside from the fact that you they were now part of New Haven, but they kind of weren't. And this also happened in other places in New Haven. For instance, Westville. Westville is always traditionally associated with New Haven, but it's more of a village. And that's similar to Morris Cove. Morris Cove always operated, and it was said uh, almost in a, by, by residents at that time that this was a seaside village within a city. So you had the city amenities, you had a connection to it, but you, they were their own thing, down to the point of having their own schools, their own police department, eventually their own fire department. So they, they had their own amenities. And in the annex, this was that way until about 1959, I believe. In, in, the, in Morris Cove, it was that way until 1923. I think everybody nowadays thinks about hurricanes, like, certainly like Hurricane Sandy, as being such big events. How did the hurricane in 1938 affect Morris Cove? So in 1938, uh, and there's been much said about it, there was a massive, massive hurricane you know, that rivaled now what, unfortunately, we're, we're starting to see much more frequently. But the largest significant effects that you could see, aside from the battering of the sea coast, was, uh, in particular, Lighthouse Point kind of lost its last structures. And it lost its last structures of being uh, what was previously a very well-known amusement park. And it was a privately owned, and again, kind of keep this in mind with this private versus public idea of uh, Morris Cove. And it had been a privately owned amusement park, uh, something that would rival, I mean, we tend to romanticize places like Coney Island, Atlantic City, but these types of resort amusement parks were popular up and down the the coast. And especially here in in New Haven, being Lighthouse Point, and then directly across uh, Savin Rock in West Haven. And they even had their own ferry. So for five cents, you could hit both parks and just ride across the harbor. So Lighthouse Point was very significant. The carousel that's there today is actually, I believe, the last structure. That that building was the only structure, and the carousel survived the uh, hurricane. And the lighthouse that's there, which isn't the original, but it was about the third lighthouse that was built, uh, those survived. The rest of the buildings, the trees, uh, what you'll see in, uh, f- in photographs and um, postcards uh, w- was pretty much wiped out. And with that, you had this, this um, kind of, you lost that part. And by this point, that park too, well, I, as I mentioned, is, was a park now. It was part of being part of uh, the city and annexed and coming in officially around 1923. 
that was also coincidentally around the time that this private, uh, privately owned amusement park became a more public part of the New Haven Park system. So you have this shift from that to being more of what it is today, an actual park. So Ed, your family moved to your grandmother's house in Morris Cove in the 1960s. This seems like a great neighborhood to have been a kid in. What was it like growing up there? It, it was an adventure. Uh, after moving from the projects on McConaughey Terrace in New Haven to go to the Cove, it was amazing all the outdoor activities we can do. There were so many different spots, the airport down the street, Nathan Hale Schoolyard, Fort Hale Park, uh, the Beacon Hill, which to us was like a forest. Now there's condos up there, but we could sneak through people's yards, climb a fence, go up the hill, and you would you could be in another country, it, depending on what we wanted to do and how many kids there were. You know, we could go to the schoolyard and play basketball if there were two of us, or even just by ourselves. If we had a few, a half a dozen, we would go to the cow pasture by the airport on Burr Street, which you could still make out, and we would play softball. Black Rock Fort, which we never called it Black Rock Fort. We would just say, what do you want to do? Do you want to go to the moat? Which if, <laughs> if you go there now, you could see the, the pond in the back. We just called it the moat. We would make a raft and just play around in the water. We would go in the caves. And then it was overrun with, uh, you know, bushes and trees. And and you could go in the caves at the time. And we just, we didn't we didn't exactly know what, what they were from. We knew it was a war, but we didn't know if it was the revolution, the Civil War, the War of 1812. We were just kids playing. And we would... Uh, we would create little dams because at high tide, if you're looking at the pier that's there now, to the right of it on the beach, the water would come in and create, and it would seep into the area by the fort. Mm -hmm. And we would make a dam. We'd actually bring a shovel. You want to go to you want to go to the moat and make a and make a dam. And now this was an era where. You, did you pretty much say goodbye to your mother in the morning and come back for dinner? Yes. You would leave and you would, for the most part, come home at 5 o'clock. You know? And if you were up the corner, say at Nathan Hale, and you were a little late, I recall some kids, their parents would, had a whistle or a bell. And one whistle meant get home for that person. My parents, it was a little, they were a little more relaxed. So when you went to visit your grandmother before you moved there, how did you get there? I remember when we visited her on Sundays, it seemed like it was so far away to come from Westville to go to Morris Cove. Is it, you know, you would drive in the car or would you take the trolley? No, we, we would drive. And I, I remember as a kid on Sundays, sitting in the back seat of the car driving down Forest Road in the wall, the stone wall on the right side of the road. And every day, whenever I go that way, if I have to go to Westville, that's the first thing I think of when I see that stone wall still there. Lots of people talk about how memorable it was to go from their neighborhood to go downtown in New Haven to go shopping at the big department stores. 
Was that a memorable occasion for you? I can remember going downtown with my mother. Uh, we would she we would get on a bus, and she would go to Macy's, Mally's probably. I think this was before Macy's was there, and we go to uh, Kresge's and W. T. Grant's, and we would go to different shops in town. I I can't remember what they were, but I remember shopping on the bus coming home. I remember my mother and I would get on the bus and go grocery shopping to Main Street in East Haven, the first national store in East Haven. And East Haven almost seemed like a metropolis compared to Morris Cove. And, you know, you, you could walk there to East Haven, but it just seemed the busy street, Main Street. I'm so impressed with how the New Haven Museum is using the Party Morris House. Jason, tell us a little bit about the house's history and what the New Haven Museum has planned for the summer. So the Party Morris House, as I mentioned earlier, was uh, burned in 1779, but then rebuilt in about 1781. It was completed, give or take. That structure still is standing, and that's what we use in the summertime out there, and it is part of the New Haven Museum. And uh, it was bequeathed to us, like as you mentioned, about 100 years ago for operation as what you'd call today pretty much a house museum. It is, to my knowledge, the oldest standing structure in New Haven. But what we do do today, so the house itself we operated uh, as a house museum, and then it was closed for some time, uh, kind of similar but not so much to uh, Lighthouse Point, which was closed too in the uh, late uh, 70s through the 80s. And uh, what we've done here with the house, though, for the last, it's going on 10 years, uh, about nine years or so, We've reopened it, and we have a series of programming every summer, and we kind of we expand each summer on on our programming. We open every Sunday, and we between and this year we'll be open every Sunday between June third and August twenty sixth, from twelve to four. Our admission is always free. Uh, we ask that people park along Lighthouse Road, but what we, what we will show you is. Kind of a quick small tour of this old house um, and uh, some of the items that you would maybe find there. So kind of your, your sort of house museum-y type thing. But uh, often, and this year again, we'll have a kind of cont- contemporary art show there. And that's something that I've been doing uh, in the house since uh, I took the last two years off, but back and but since 2010. Because what I like to view this house as is um, kind of uh, raw space in the sense of what a, you know, uh, an old loft would be or factory. Well, this is colonial raw space located right on the water here. And that's what makes it a very unique place. You go out to this residential neighborhood and you're in this you know, very old New England home. And uh, in it, we like to show, again, local art. This year's show will be by a friend of uh, Ed's here that he grew up with, uh, Richard Esposito. And these are photos taken uh, in the late 60s, early 1970s, kind of growing up in the Cove. Morris Cove Day was a long tradition in the Cove, a celebration of of kind of living in the cove, right, and uh, get together where everybody would be there. Uh, that's coming back, and that will be on Saturday, June 9th, 
at 12 noon to 4. Uh, the details for that are at morriscoveday.wordpress.com or at Facebook, uh, Morris Cove Day. What we run as programs there are Twilight Concert Series, too. So we bring bands in, and uh, they hang out on our green. Because what we have a nice amenity to this house is we have the grounds, which are a nice, great big lawn. So in the summertime, again, you're a block up from the water, nice sunset. Uh, we tend to have uh, food trucks uh, that come, and... Our admission is always free. Donations are welcomed, and you can bring in blankets, chairs. Uh, the grounds open at 6. The concerts always begin at 7 and last for about an hour. And our concerts this year are Washboard Slim in the Blue Lights on Wednesday, June 27th, Joe Miller and the Hip Shakers on Wednesday, July 11th, the New London Big Band on Wednesday, July 25th, and Two Blue on Wednesday, August 8th. Another thing we're doing this year, too, is yoga on the lawn. Thank you, Jason and Ed. I can't wait to go to one of the concerts this summer and enjoy the grounds of the Party Morris House. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We wish to thank Jason Bischoff-Worstel, Director of Photo Archives, and Ed Serrato, Librarian at the New Haven Museum. For more information about the Pardee Morris House, Morris Cove Day, and other summer programs happening there this summer, visit morriscoveday.wordpress.com or newhavenmuseum.org. This episode was hosted and produced by Mary Donahue and engineered by Patrick O'Sullivan. To hear more episodes of Grading the Nutmeg, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, or at gradingthenutmeg.libsign.com. And for more great Connecticut history stories, subscribe to Connecticut Explored at ctexplored.org. This episode was sponsored by attorney Peter Bowman, helping the seriously injured and holding distracted drivers accountable for their actions. More at bowman.legal and Connecticut Humanities. Visit cthumanities.org. This is Walt Woodward, hoping you'll join us next time for another episode of Grading the Nutmeg.